what's up nothing much i'm gonna lead us off with an excerpt of a poem oh where all leads for what all is and why is there no answer through the breathless void is there no whisper through the timeless sky no song from sun nor moon nor asteroid love is and through that flame will man no light how strange that earth should question in the night that was a poem from Aileen Carter. She was the Poet Laureate in 1947 in San Antonio, Texas, and she's going to become very important in the story that we tell today. Yeah, guys, um, welcome to Texas Overture, our new podcast. Welcome. Um, should we talk a little bit about what Texas Overture is? Yeah, I think so. Wouldn't that be appropriate? Yeah, so... Texas Overture is essentially a para-anthropology podcast. Um, we both kind of studied anthropology in college, and we want to explore mystical, psychological, paranormal phenomena, specifically within Texas. Um, we're very interested in the idea of place and time as it relates to these phenomena. Right, and I think it's important to lean into these instincts and interests that we have and to try to take them to their conclusion and to understand the phenomenological <laughs> context behind them. Um, and I think that this podcast is a means for us to do that, to explore the Texas landscape as it exists on a sort of mystical or obscured plane. Yeah, so <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Um, we're going to be talking more in depth about a place um shrouded in all sorts of mysteries called the almost basin in san antonio texas and some of the paranormal happenings connected to it the almost basin is essentially a low-lying wooded area just north of the city's downtown now tucked under highway 281 it's defined by its soccer fields and walking paths, gnarled oak trees, deposits of brush and litter left over from the last flood, and the nearby almost dam. It's strange, but it's one of those places that you encounter every so often that feels like it's at the center of something energetically, acting like a magnet to strange activity and events. The history and folklore surrounding it definitely reflect that, and today we're going to be looking at one case in particular. All right, so let's get into it. One of the most important characters we're going to be talking about today is Whitley Strieber. Uh, Camille and I both learned about Whitley Strieber a couple of years ago because we were doing some digging and we learned that there was a famous author who had had UFO experiences in San Antonio. I bought Camille a copy of his book Communion from the Unlimited Thought Enlightenment Center on San Pedro. Some of you might be familiar. It is now destroyed. Tra tragically. Um, yeah. You know, still still uh, have unlimited thoughts in my mind about it uh, personally but um yeah communion um is a non-fiction book that's important uh published in 1987 about whitley streber's encounter with a group he refers to as the visitors uh the book really um confronts the psychological and existential implications of whitley's abduction from his cabin in upstate new york um I believe it was the day after Christmas. Um, mm -hmm. The book ultimately sold like two million copies. It was adapted into a movie starring Christopher Walken, who's being an absolute freak. Yes. It's an it's an awesome movie. You you have to watch it. There's um, 
really bad Eric Clapton guitar riffs interspersed throughout and um little little blue men yeah it's, it sets the tone it's it's sure. a real treat um <laughs> for a movie night with a friend or lover um <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know previous to communion you know came out in the late 80s uh, he had already kind of been on the scene um he was in advertising and then he kind of pivoted to a career in writing horror books um he wrote the wolfen and the hunger i believe one of those was adapted into a movie yeah the hunger it was adapted into a movie it stars david bowie and susan sarandon and Catherine deneuve mm-hmm. i haven't seen that one damn um but both of those kind of dealt with sort of paranormal themes um and when communion communion was released it kind of ushered whitley into the wild west of 1980s ufo culture which if you're unfamiliar was um quite chaotic um it landed him in a feud with bud hopkins a ufologist and fellow author of a book dealing um with abduction themes around the same time that i think it was called intruders and um this sort of chapter in his life led him to be a frequent guest on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM radio show, which some of you might have might be familiar with. Um, and after communion, he went on to write a number of other nonfiction books, uh, expounding upon his experiences with the visitors. But our focus for today isn't Whitley's fame in the UFO community, but some strange events that happened to him in his childhood right here in San Antonio. Yeah, so Whitley was born in San Antonio in 1945 to a well-off family in Terrell Hills, um, a nice neighborhood in town, not far from the Olmos Basin. His mother was Kathleen Mary Drought, and his father was Carl Streber. Um, she was kind of like woman about town in the newspapers for going to society events, and his father was apparently a lawyer with oil and gas interests, um, and they are kind of prominent in the community uh whitley went to central catholic high school um knew a lot of boys who went through that system um and he you know outwardly lived a very leave it to beaver ass life but if beaver time traveled with other little boys in the night yeah so in 1997 whitley published the secret school um, and this book is also a nonfiction book like Communion, published as a nonfiction book, and it goes into his experiences at the Almost Basin, where he claims to have been taken into a children's circle um, or a secret school that met in the middle of the night at the behest of one shadowy nun-like figure. Right, and this all began in 1954 on the roof of the Streber home on Elizabeth Road in San Antonio, where Whitley would frequently sit out and watch the stars at night. Um, he had what he calls his first Mars experience. And this is described as uh, him as a nine-year-old boy sort of plummeting through a vision through space and time and eventually ending up meeting a shadowy figure he mistook for a nun from the nearby incarnate word. Um, the figure approached Whitley in his, in his dream and his vision and told him at all costs, you will remember the telescope. Um, and she held out a book to him and he recalled that she sort of brought his head down into the pages. Um, and she said at all costs, you will remember the telescope. And she said, get to the telescope. And he came back to, he was in his bed 
and the dream and vision became prophetic in a sense. Everything seemed to fall into place for Whitley when he met Aileen Carter at the Woody Museum in San Antonio. The lovely poet whom Faith read at the beginning. Um, Before we get any further, I just want to say that I know some of this may sound a little wacky, a little cuckoo bananas, um, you know, and that we're not really here to, to, to really, you know, get to the truth. (laughs) We're here to get to the truth. We're not necessarily interested in facts. Yeah. Or proving or disproving any one thing. Yeah. And I want to say that, uh, shortly after communion was published, a local journalist named Ed Conroy penned a 400, a a tome upwards of 400 (laughs) pages kind of, you know, you know, viciously, you know, investigating uh, and corroborating some of Whitley's claims. Um, Ed wrote for the San Antonio Express News, still still around in town, and, um, you know, kind of met with Whitley extensively, met with his family members, met with psychologists who uh, checked Whitley, and doctors who checked Whitley for temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, so there had, there, if you're interested more in that, you can check that book out it's very interesting uh and it provides a lot of context about the sort of bubbling ufo community at the time you know uh, all the characters uh william moore mm. linda milton howe etc um but yeah if you're if you're at all feeling like this is crazy uh that's valid and there's a lot of stuff out there on that topic Okay, uh, back to Whitley and Aileen. These two met while young Whitley was at the Woody Museum admiring um, the shrunken head collection, which has since been removed only because they were found to be artificial. Uh, he heard a voice uh, behind no him. No ethical reasons for that. Yeah, exactly. He heard a voice behind him say, you're not looking, you're devouring. And uh, he described her, he said he looked up at a tall, bony woman in the sheerest, most complicated, most diaphanous dress he had ever seen. Um, He says she wore the largest straw hat I had ever seen. She had big eyes and spoke with the softly cultivated accent of the Old South. When her eyes met mine, I felt a door get kicked open right in the middle of me. I wish that I had gone to confession and communion and was in a definite state of grace instead of standing here, wasting my time thinking about how interesting it would be to see them actually shrinking the heads. What a, what kind of nine-year-old is being like <laughs> this extravagant woman in a diaphanous gown? Yeah, he's a little little freak for that. Um, but I mean, clearly, you know, Eileen, Aileen, you know, he was transfixed by her. Um, uh, Aileen uh, was kind of another prominent figure around town. Um, she was a poet and a harpist and she lived with her husband at the Maverick Carter house um, what is now known as the Maverick Carter house which it today is close to downtown near the Tobin Center um, and not that far but a sizable distance from where Whitley grew up in Terrell Hills um, at the Carter house there is an observatory um, built by Ethel Harris a woman who was known at the time for her tile work. Um, Aileen also commissioned her to build her chapel in the dunes, which is a chapel in Port Aransas on Mustang Island. Um, that's very beautiful. When Aileen met Whitley 
uh, and told him about her telescope, it lit his brain up given the vision he had recently had. He obviously became obsessed with this woman and going to the observatory, and it was all that he could think about. Uh, Whitley writes in the book that he fell ill with polio shortly after, kind of a classic ailment of the times, and he almost died. He says that his fever was like 107 degrees, and it was this like torturous, scary experience. I think he almost got his like last rites read to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of in the dwindling days of his illness, um, with the telescope with the observatory still in his mind and Aileen still in his mind he uh pretended to be asleep one night and rode his bike all the way down to the to the Carter house right and it was it was a very concerted effort from Whitley to do this he had to keep a lot of secrets from his family that day in order to sneak out um and I think that 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 sort of thing was sort of characteristic for Whitley uh that sort of curiosity leading him out of the house he writes that his mom came into his room and was trying to uh, tell if he was awake or not, and that his mom opened the door and began growling at him to try to wake him up, to try to tell him, um, you know, that maybe there was something there that he should be afraid of. Um, but he he stuck to his guns. And has your mother ever growled you at you? Um, not that I rem- not no <laughs> no she hasn't. I don't think mine has either. It's a tactic that I guess doesn't work. (laughs) Um, The boy broke free. Yeah, and he rode his bike. I I meant to look up how long that bike ride would be, but I think it probably like an hour and a half or something for formerly sick Whitley Strieber to to ride into downtown San Antonio. And he writes that, you know, at that point, San Antonio was not the sort of place that had any activity past midnight. So he was being very conspicuous um, out in the world. And he ended up on Aileen Carter's porch um, and was able to shimmy his way through the door but actually it was just it was unlocked so (laughs) people weren't locking doors like they do nowadays no back then you could do anything you could just walk right in and drink a glass of milk in the kitchen (laughs) you could walk right in and use the observatory if you wanted walk right in and take a nap on the couch Mm -hmm. well Whitley did not take a nap on the couch, but he did walk right in to go scope out the observatory. And I'm going to read a passage in the book um, about that fateful night. It was during that night in Mrs. Carter's observatory that I was finally admitted to the secret school. The long weeks of struggle were over. I did not know it, but from the moment I heard the low, resonant voice reply to my whisper, I was a fully matriculated student of its wonders. This was the moment that the telescope seemed to change. I backed toward the door, away from what now looked like a dark, matted knot of snakes with skin of polished black metal. I felt very trapped up here, aware that the voice had come from somewhere, thinking that it was Mrs. Carter and that I had woken her up. My recollection of the transition that followed is vague. One moment I was at the telescope, then I was lifted off my feet, and suddenly I was walking in a line of children going along a wooded path. This is the first memory that I have involving the others in my children's circle. I found myself close behind a boy whom I soon realized I knew from school. He was wearing a white t-shirt, and he was so hot that I could see sweat soaking down his back. 
This begins Whitley's experience in the secret school. Him and the other children in the children's circle are being led down the basin to this big tree. He writes that he actually recognizes some of the other kids from his classes, from school, his extracurriculars. Um, And at this point, more memories start to come flooding back for him. They are led to a large bulbous tree that he describes as looking like an African baobab. In the Olmus Basin, um, these meetings took place around the tree. And he recalls an unlike instructor as being known as the Sister of Mercy, which is something that he intuited in his initial vision when she told him to get to the telescope. And when he met Aileen Carter, he actually asked her if she was a Sister of Mercy, and she said, oh, heavens no, because that was a euphemism for a prostitute. Um, But, you know, something about (laughs) Aileen, she was also known as, like, the Angel of Prisons, because apparently she had a thing for an incarcerated guy, and she fought like hell to get him loose but that's mm-hmm. an, another thing entirely um so yeah the rest of uh, most of the the book from here um kind of goes into these recovered memories that he has accessed in his later life um that he is connected to the visitor experiences that he describes in communion though they it's not clear that they are connected events and it definitely raises questions about what the nature of these events really are um but he describes experiences like you you know being exposed to technology that was not of his time futuristic technology something similar to a vr headset right structurally yeah large helmets and he describes being in places and spaces that really weren't possible or mm-hmm. like grounded in our idea of reality and possibly influenced by these technologies or by the practices that were going on in this children's circle. So Whitley starts to have these experiences with the other children where he feels like they are basically time traveling. Um, he's having all of these these thoughts and visions that sort of transcend our degree of of reality and of linear time and he writes that i can remember how comfortable this extremely strange state of being seemed it was normal i was used to it as i rode in one life and walked in the other i shifted the focus of my attention back and forth with complete ease in the basin i was going to the benches in rome i was going to a temple i was not steeped as we usually are in linear time but conscious in two presents in two parallel times instead And these two times that he's talking about are him in the basin with the other children gathering in the benches around the tree with the Sister of Mercy, and in Rome, where he writes that he would travel through the city and he knew the city well and he was finding temples and praying and gathering in similar ways that he was in the Olmos Basin. Yeah, later on he also talks about kind of visiting an ancient society on Earth of people populated by people with more expanded consciousness and who had more intuitive knowledge of like you know the ways in which the universe worked um and in several related experiences um in in space yeah um, yeah he talks about effectively witnessing the creation of the earth watching uh, galaxies collide and the moon breaking off and all of these experiences are sort of centered around this community and the idea that he is learning something past what we know and that he's sort of fine-tuning this ability. 
something interesting that comes up in one of the memories is the presence of his father too yeah Um, it's a kind of more of a hazy one but i think it's notable that you know a familiar adult was in the room when he had an experience he relates to the secret school yeah um yeah and something i think is really interesting especially in a relation to these early experiences he describes of like expanding consciousness through the secret school is um his later involvement as an adult in the Gurdjieff Society or the Gurdjieff Foundation which was built upon the ideas of George Gurdjieff who was an Armenian thinker and philosopher whose core belief essentially was that mankind is in a state of waking sleep and that there are things that we can do to kind of achieve a higher level of consciousness um and yeah so i just think it's interesting that like later on he became so embedded in this group that you know oriented itself around that um yeah and it all began around around this big tree which um in the spirit of our our boots on the ground journalism we went to we went to the damn tree folks we found the tree we found the tree it's real you can go to it you can go to it and uh we set off looking for this tree and and personally i was under the impression that we were going to be on like a three-hour journey through the forest maybe like macheteing i don't know branches weeds and fending off beasts yeah and I, also i thought that there were going to be so many trees and that it was going to be really difficult to find this tree but actually it's very conveniently located just off a path on the incarnate word campus and it is so big it's fucking huge dude and you know at the time that whitley was you know having these experiences that area was definitely less developed incarnate word was just a college not a university the pharmacy school wasn't there so i'm sure it was much more obscured and now now there's a a labyrinth built near the tree too yeah yeah off saint bridget's path um which is kind of it's kind of cluttered with different like shrines to saint bridget too um and we went looking for the labyrinth as well which i also thought was going to be like large bushes completely uh covering you and obscuring your sight but it was actually just some rocks just some dusty ass rocks i yeah i think labyrinths should be as tall as bathroom stalls at least so you can have some privacy as you heal your your demons (laughs) as you want to do when you're confronting a labyrinth um but yeah the tree was huge it was on a hill uh it it looked diseased i could see why it looked like a baobab tree um there were small small um sort of areas where a child a child might fit and the accessibility of the tree definitely doesn't um, undermine the the grandiose nature of it it was it was was very large hit him hit him with that grandiose nature exactly i put my hand on it yeah in in many places Um, i felt it kick there was no way that that we could have had an unbiased experience at this tree we were in too deep, but we did see it, and it was beautiful. Yeah, it was awesome. We found it through 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 people who knew, mm-hmm. people from the past, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> right, so we have, you know, 
these experiences from Whitley Strieber in the Olmos Basin, and they're quite extraordinary. They um, cover a lot of bases, and it's important to acknowledge that there are other people who have seen similar things. It's not just one guy. It's actually two guys. It's two <laughs> It's, it's actually, it's two to 35 guys who have seen things in this area. Um, and one of the most prominent ones, aside from Whitley, is Ron McCaddy, who claimed that he saw a UFI, oh my God, a UFO um, over the Olmos Basin area from the Cambridge Elementary School playground uh, around the same time, early 50s. Um, I have an excerpt from his story here. Ron McCaddy writes... It was a rocket-powered ship, to be sure. That was the only certainty, apparently made of metal. Even the color of the metal had a dark, eerie shade to it. The ship was completely silent, yet there was one awful symmetry to the configuration of the ship, like it did not belong here. And yet there was a magnificent beauty to it all, actually beholding the art of another world. McCaddy writes about that. He writes about seeing the ship. And then he writes about... The way he describes it is, is sort of receiving these messages in his brain from a voice that doesn't sound like his. And the message that he got was, we are being watched. And he sort of paused and, and reflected on that for a moment. And then he got two more. We must not be seen. We must leave. Damn. Yeah. He And he's somebody who Ed Conroy, of author of Report on Communion, also kind of interviewed extensively and kind of spoke to and recounted a lot of um his experiences in that book i did some more shoe leather journalism folks and i emailed my contact at the texas division of mufon um to to kind of see about um any recent ufo sightings in the basin area which includes the incarnate word campus and areas surrounding cambridge elementary school um, and according to my my um, pen pal Ken Jordan, um, in the last 12 years, there have been 357 sighting reports of UFOs, um, of which only 35 were of significance by MUFON standards um, as unidentified uh, craft in and around central San Antonio, which would be the almost basin area. And I thought that was, um, you know, I thought it was interesting. There's stuff going on, yeah. maybe. Then I was back in a secret school in Texas. We were getting up from our benches, hugging each other, telling our teacher goodbye. She sat slumped, her head down, as motionless as if she was dead. We were used to it, hugging her unresponsive body anyway. So, I think that... Something that was interesting in, in communion too was that Whitley at times shows like this very strange affection towards the visitors and towards the unknown. And it seems like there's a sort of like exchange of power that's going on through through these memories that he has, which he says many times. I th I think that we've been, you know, referring to them as, as visions and experiences, but for them they're just memories. And that's I guess sort of us revising it for the sake of accessibility but he claims that these things happened and um you know for this for for him this is he's traveling and he's really truly visiting these other times and what he says about the secret school is that the secret school was meant to teach these children how to revise history 
and how to get in touch with themselves in a way that gave them access to do so. Uh, he says, who founded the secret school, this hidden gateway to the timeless larger mind that is our true self? Was it visitors from some other planet? If so, why lavish all this attention on us? Or was it our own souls or people from the past or the future or some other meaning of reality altogether? So I think that the obvious conclusion or through line that we can draw from this is that the strange hooded figure Whitley became so familiar with in the forest was Aileen Carter. Carter in her public life was known for sort of bringing children into her home, teaching them about science, about art, about poetry. And it's very possible that she did that in other ways too. Around her observatory were painted the words, When I consider thy heavens, O Lord. And I think that this is important to mention because I think it's important to mention the idea of worship because that's something that was incredibly important to her and Whitley alike. A lot of the secret school is Whitley sort of relating these experiences back to God, whether it be his father's voice, the creatures he sees in the night, or the messages he receives. He feels the need to constantly reaffirm that all of these things are of God. And I think it's, I think it's important to reflect on this because they're intertwined with the idea of worship and with the idea of wanting to make contact. When he entered Aileen's home the first night, when he was sneaking in, before stumbling into the observatory, Whitley visited her chapel, and above the doors to her chapel, the words are painted, Be still and prepare to meet thy God. And this is something that you'll see in a lot of UFO discourse and conversation, is the idea that aliens and angels and flying saucers, they're all the same thing. In Carl Jung's Flying Saucer book, he talks about circular symbols a lot and how circular symbols have historically always meant God. He says something I really like, an old adage, God is a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Witt and Aileen alike were equally concerned with the idea of contact, whether it be with aliens, God, or both. And the smoking gun in all of this, Aileen and Alien are anagrams. Think about it. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Um, I would just add that, yeah, some of even the more grounded rituals that Whitley describes at the secret school have this sort of strange religiosity to them. There's a passage where he describes all the children and the Sister of Mercy participating in a kind of ecstatic, frenetic type of dancing together like the Sufis or the Shakers would. And I also think it's no small thing that the night he says began his initiation into the secret school, the night that he broke into Alien Alien Carter's home. He was recovering from a near-death experience that led him to be read his last rites in the Catholic Church. Um, I don't know, like, in a way, his desire to see the telescope saved him, or at least that's the way it's kind of framed in the book. Um, I'd like to read one more Alien Carter poem that I think is very sweet and whimsical, but also maybe further connects some of the dots. It's called Baby on a Shooting Star. Baby, close your eyes. We'll creep out where all the world's asleep. Then we'll sail into the sky where the suns go whirling by. We'll sail a cloud and catch the moon. Is it baby's lost balloon? Then we'll travel oh so far on a fiery shooting star. Now dust is smeared on baby's toes. S stardust on his little nose. Oh, what fun it is to play all along the Milky Way. Let us romp with the great bear, tumbling near the dragon there, and we'll have to race the swan before the candle night is gone.
when the sun peeps up again oh they'll wonder wonder then why my baby looks so wise oh it's kind of kind of a secret school yeah it's very sweet learning about the cosmos under the cover of night Talking about all of this, I think it's important to bring it back to the basin itself and look more closely at the outwardly and assuming kind of sun-scorched land in the middle of south-central Texas that to Whitley Strieber has this sort of sacred significance. You know, even before like knowing about the secret school or really about the basin's history, I always had this sort of unplaceable, eerie impression. You'd hear stories about like politicians cheating on their wives and other sorts of claims of debauchery ed conroy writes about like people claiming to see ufos flying into the elmos basin in the ron mcgaddy era um and it's just weird because personally i used to go there all the time it was a big part of my my own childhood in a way i had soccer practice there like for years and it's a place where i first encountered like the first glimmer of pornography I ever saw, uh, like a soccer ball got kicked into the into the brush, and I had to go retrieve it. And there were just like porno leaflets, and it, that scandalized me at a very young age. Um, so those kind of things leave an impression. Yeah, I I wasn't active there during my childhood, but I think like late high school, maybe early college, I went to the Hobo Caves for the first time, which is an area that's attached to the dam at the Olmos Basin. And I just found it so strange and so eerie, and I I couldn't believe that I had never been there before. And it was strange because the Hobo Caves, they're this, it's it's attached to, to the dam, and there's this large staircase that goes up and a large ladder, and it's all very desolate, but it's covered in graffiti, and there's so much to tell you that humans have been there and that humans have been there for a very long time, but it still feels just entirely quiet and unpopulated and it it just gives you a very strange sense to know that you're somewhere that people have been for for a long time before but you have no connection to it I think yeah there's a lot of artifacts there even if like the artifacts are like crumpled cans of Mickey's and and stuff stuff like that um yeah I don't know I think maybe one reason why the Elmos Basin you know, after reading more, one reason why the Olmos Basin could be entangled in all of this and the Whitley Strieber saga and why it still feels like such a magnetic place to us and why we find ourselves drawn to it nearly 30 years after he even said something happened to him there is that it's honestly kind of like a geographically important place with implications for the development of life and civilization here in this part of Texas. Um yeah, like the the whole footprint of the Olmos Basin lies on the Balcones Fault Zone, which has been dormant for like 15 million years, but it's responsible for all the springs throughout San Antonio and eastern and central Texas, um, including the original headwaters of the San Antonio River, now known as the Blue Hole, which at one point was apparently more of a geyser than a spring, but now it's sad. It's mostly all dried up. When we went to the tree in the Elmas Basin, we actually also went to the Blue Hole and we crawled inside not knowing that it was home to several 
a species of special spiders. They're so special. <laughs> um, yeah, we we got right up in it. It was very dry. There were there were dried flowers that looked like someone had tossed into the hole, and they were kind of scattered around, and they clung to the rocks that built it. Um, it was a strange experience. I think that I felt more connected to the blue hole, I guess, spiritually than I did the tree and as I said before, it was impossible for us to have an unbiased ex- experience because we've been focusing so much on this, but it was special. It, it felt nice to be a person in a place that has provided so much for so many different people in our area. Yeah, I did hurt my spine crawling into it. <laughs> so it's still very tender there, yeah. um, but I agree. It felt it felt like kind of special and solemn in a way to be in a place like that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know I like in having like a reverence for like the place that like generated the the, the city that you live in in a way um, if you're unfamiliar with San Antonio it, it's like in many ways defined by its river like obviously in like corny like gift shop ways but also like places on the banks which were once filled with vegetation have been replaced by businesses and you know something we're really interested in and something we talk about a lot is like the idea of water being a conduit for energy um and you know obviously this has like tangible implications water being a natural draw for biological life and settlements and is also something that i you know i think can be harder to place uh you know in my day a ghost tour guide once told me that water is a very active conduit for paranormal energy um and i believe that um san antonio is a place that is geographically destined to be saddled with drought also like we're definitely you know being uh, you know kind of in the southernmost reaches of the country you know dealing with some of that and the basin by nature of being a low-lying kind of floodplain marked by the nearby dam first built after a devastating flood in 1921 has a sense of eeriness kind of like in a mark fisher way that is defined by the absence of water when everything is all dried up yeah, I don't know. I'm interested, like, yeah, what happens to these places, like the Blue Hole, an old river, creek, or basin, when the water has stopped flowing? Like, where does all that energy go? I don't know. Right. I remember when we were at the Blue Hole, I was looking inside and thinking about the, the naming of San Antonio after St. Anthony of Padua, and thinking about how he's the patron saint of lost things, and all of the water that was once there, and just where it went, and how strange it is that we were looking into a life source that was just completely gone, completely dried up, um, yeah. that, that clearly like ran its course and did what it needed to do. Yeah, it kind of makes you feel like you're living after everything or something. Yeah. Um, in her paper, The Archaeology and Early History of the Head of the San Antonio River, Dr. Karen Stothert, you know, does describe the Elmas Basin as a place that was at once a biological hub and a transitional zone between the oak, juniper, hickory woods common in northern Bear County and the Texas Hill Country and the dry brush country characteristic of southern Bear County, the coastal plain and the Rio Grande plain. Um, And then she kind of goes into talking about the Payaya people and other nations of Coahuiltecan people who lived in the basin area um, you know, when the dam was first built in the 1920s, like literally a cemetery from the late archaic period was bulldozed. Like people have been in that, drawn to that area forever. Like lithic tools have been found there. 
um yeah and like you said like yeah like san antonio was literally named um san antonio because a group of like early spanish settlers in 1691 like arrived at the headwaters arrived at the area that is now known as the blue hole uh on san anthony de padua's feast day like that's crazy how like it all kind of leads back to this one thing and like still like even like after that like a more recent history like the almost basin drew a lot of like chaos through its like military activity it was a camp during the mexican-american war in the mid-1940s um and like during world war one it was like a u.s balloon corp like bait training camp like military balloons which is kind of wacky to think about um yeah i don't know today san antonio is such like a fucking bloated suburban city but it's interesting to kind of connect even a place like that so defined by its sprawl and Mm -hmm. like you know lack of like you know localization through its like all its chains um to like one like definitive aquatic source um i don't know with the whitley streeper stuff you know maybe there's something happening in the in the fault line that we're not aware of or i'm not aware of and there's some sort of like geomagnetic activity influencing people's behavior in the area like causing all these strange incidents i don't know um maybe there's like real aliens like something akin to whitley streeper's visitors and they're drawn there for the same reason we've we are and that we've always been because it's like a source of life all of these things they beg the question do you love this shit are you high right now do you ever get nervous i started recording (laughs) (laughs) uh you know just it's fine to process ideas and images through through jake drake's um discography moving on yeah there's a lot a lot to think about a lot of questions hanging heavy in the air considering all of this um you know um i i think you know it it draws the question you know something i want to pitch to the room was whitley streber fed strategic disinformation about ufos and the visitors by the military or the cia like was he a victim of richard doty uh who came forward um Uh, as a member of the military influencing people like William Moore, the author of the Roswell incident, who also spread false MJ-12 documents, um, and fellow coast-to-coast AM guest Linda Moulton Howe. And even if he is an agent of disinformation, like, what can we learn from these strange and heavily documented experiences? You know, like, was he being psychologically experimented on? you know by whom does it does it matter i don't know and does whitley streber's interest in like space and consciousness preclude him from being a credible source or does it make him kind of a perfect vessel for the visitors to get their message across right and then there's the very fundamental question are aliens real and of course that you know we have no possibility of answering that and many people don't And we also just have to consider, is that even what we're talking about, aliens? Who was the sister of Mercy, the dark figure that led Whitley and the other children through the forest? Was it Aileen Carter, the poet laureate and astronomy enthusiast, or is that too easy? 
Was she an alien, a product of the imagination, an angel? As Rilke says in the Duino elegies, every angel is terrifying. And I think that, that, <laughs> that that's very relevant here. And I think, honestly, any of these speculations seem equally possible to me at this point. Yeah, I don't know. I think, at least to me, what's compelling about Whitley Strieber, I mean, obviously, it's a whole can of worms that we don't have the time to fully go in depth into at the moment but like something that's compelling about him is that like in a lot of his works he seems to approach his experiences in like a very like existential way and it's clear that they meant something to him yeah and I I think he is earnest and I guess that we can judge him for our not knowing where these experiences come from and what he's been influenced by but I do think it's important to note that I think we both believe that Whitley Strieber believes what he's saying. And I think that, you know, he writes about these experiences with a lot of conviction and that means something. And we don't know, I guess, uh, exactly where to draw the line, but there are a lot of things that we can read into when we read um, his memories. At least, at least during that, that time in the past, he's, you know, has his own, a podcast of his own now. And, uh, (laughs) You know, it's hard to to fully take anyone's stance, but yeah. it's hard to deny that he's somebody who is worth studying. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes it can be tempting to try to get to the bottom of a truth, but often that's, like, the least interesting part. I don't know. What makes a place like the Almost Basin a place worth talking about, worth attaching stories to? How has it been home to so much history? Is it a portal? I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, is it a portal to, like, inner earth or, like, the heavens, the cosmos? I don't know. Like, you can draw your own conclusions. Right. And I think, I think that the best way to end this, the content of the episode, is just to let Willie Strieber take it away for us. He ends the secret school by saying this. Like Charlie Cockrell, I have come to hypothesize that all of humanity is connected at a very deep level of mind where there exist structures and energies that permit communication of truths that go to the very core of our lives. That level of mind, moreover, is not separated from the earth itself, but is, in fact, deeply connected with it, in an energetic sense, especially at certain sites where the energy seems to be more freely available. Is the Olmus Basin one such place? I have come to seriously entertain the possibility that it is. Born into a culture that looks at land solely as real estate to be developed, I admit that I hunger for a sacred landscape. But the stories of the witnesses will remain, even if the last oak in the Olmos Basin is bulldozed to make way for yet another athletic field. Gee whiz. (laughs) Um, yeah, this feels like a good point to stop. Thank you for listening if you chose to do so. Yeah, um, thank you for listening. I think it's it's important for us to discuss this, this sort of thing. Uh, I guess my interest from this comes from my artistic background. I'm just, I really like the way that people assign meaning to things that, I guess, exist beyond the physical realm. And I like the way that different people interpret the same phenomena. Um, I'm just interested in the way that you know, these sorts of undercurrents sort of slip through the cracks and make themselves known to us from time to time. And I think that this is a good way to begin exploring that, the Olmos Basin. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, as we previously mentioned too, like we both kind of have a, an anthropo like a student anthropology background and, um, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe not. I've dabbled in the trenches of what I'll call SEO based media, uh, journalism. Um, and I think through that experience, I found myself kind of talking to all kinds of different people and developing a reverence to, you know, the place I live and kind of being very bored and, and, and frustrated with the type of media that's like allowed to exist here, um, especially when there's so much like real magic um, and mystery pervading Texas history and like the, the land itself. Um, you know, I mean, uh, also like I truly wasn't suited for that type of work. I'm lazy and have like a Nancy Drew disorder. Uh, <laughs> so it really, you know, wasn't my bag, but I think, you know, doing something like this feels very exciting and earnest. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of threads that I think maybe we touched on just very, very briefly in this episode that we're going to pick up um, elsewhere in other places or people around Texas that we feel need to be delved into a little bit so I think that I think that this is a good well for us to start with yeah the, the spring is bubbling baby exactly all right well thank you everybody once again um appreciate it <laughs> uh, I'm Camille and Faith and this, is, this has been Texas Overture thanks for listening guys yep goodbye I passed out on the 14th floor The CPR was so erotic A blizzard flew in through the door And little glowing cum buckets in her